So the main thing about this handout is you don't need to read it. It's a trouble with handouts. People obviously want to see what's on it, but I'll talk about it in a moment. So good evening. This evening I want to cover the basics of what we're doing here on this retreat. We've already brought in some of the themes of what we'll be focusing on. Obviously there was a description that somehow enticed you to come to this particular retreat. Perhaps it was just the time. I know that's often the case. But um, to just give a sense of what we're doing here and a little bit why we're doing it. Why do we do this? Why do we take ourselves out of our full and busy lives and come here for a week to Spirit Rock? I touched on this a little bit when I spoke just before the lunch meal about the mindful eating and how it brings together all of these different aspects of what we're doing. You know, we, 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 we're practicing mindfulness, which is, well, I should say, um, we started our day today with mindfulness, with this cultivation of attention, this knowing what's happening. And then, as I said before lunch, that begs the question of what do we pay attention to? Because there's so much going on. There's so many things that we could choose to pay attention to. And equally important is how we pay attention, the attitude that we bring to that paying of attention, and then the why. Why do we do this? What gets cultivated? What's the benef- what are the benefits? Why, why are we doing this? So we use these very simple direct experiences as we were guided through this morning of connecting with the body, body sitting or walking, often noticing the simple movement of the breath, And then the other aspects of the physical senses, the sights, the smells, the sounds, especially as we sit here, it's often the body sitting, breathing, and hearing sounds. Of course, the mind um, then comes in because we know the body through the mind, right? Even though we use the body, we use the breath, we use sounds and these other objects of the physical senses to gather our attention, Ultimately, what we're doing is training the mind. And I think I said, either this morning or last night, that when we use this term mind, it's a translation of the Pali term citta, which means both mind and heart. So it includes the whole realm of our mental, emotional life. So we're training that aspect of experience. And the first way of training, or the most important part of that training, is to understand it, to know it. So we gather the attention through these simple but not easy practices of coming into the present moment, knowing what's happening, using the breath, body, sounds, other things, to understand and train the mind. That's ultimately what we're doing. And to train the mind towards insight, towards understanding, towards wisdom. So that's a very quick um, synopsis of the mindfulness and insight practice that we'll do here. I'll talk more about it in a moment. But that then becomes the foundation 
for these other practices that we'll be doing. We started this afternoon with metta, with loving kindness. And then we'll do the other Brahma-vihara of equanimity. Mindfulness is also the foundation for any of the intentional or cultivation practices that we might do. Another classic one is concentration practice or samadhi. The basis of that is this knowing what's happening in the present moment. In samadhi, we might... um, I don't like the word narrow, we we might select a focus for our attention, keep it really simple, simplify our attention, but the same process is happening. And so we'll use these mindfulness awareness practices as the foundation for the other practices that we're doing. And as the retreat goes on, we'll weave these different practices in and you'll learn how to weave them in into your own practice so you know for yourself what's a useful, skillful practice to do in any time. So we start with the awareness practice, a mindfulness practice. We introduced metta. And as we've said already, metta is considered for us the foundational Brahma-vihara, just like mindfulness is the foundation of of these other practices. Metta is the foundational Brahma-vihara because when metta meets happiness or well-being, I should say, metta is the connection to happiness and well-being. But when metta contacts that heart of kindness, that open, connected heart, meets suffering, it automatically responds as compassion. When it encounters joy, inward or outward, it becomes mudita, sympathetic or empathetic, joy, joy, gladness. And equanimity is necessary for all of the Brahma-viharas to find their balance so they don't tip into what's called their near and far enemies. And again, we'll talk more about that as the retreat goes on. But metta is necessary to kind of warm up the equanimity so it doesn't seem too cool, doesn't seem at all disconnected. So they all inform each other, but metta has this beautiful chameleon-like quality of being able to move into the other three and really support their deepening. So we teach metta a lot as the foundational Brahma-vihara. I teach a metta retreat nearly every year here at Spirit Rock. We do a number of metta retreats every year and often on other retreats, especially our longer retreats, we'll teach the Brahma-viharas, but mainly metta because it is so such a valuable practice. And we don't tend to so much teach the equanimity. So it's why I'm so happy to be here on this retreat and that you, you know, appreciate that you are interested in coming and learning this technique and this training because it's so important and so central. And under this theme of equanimity, we could teach on nearly anything that the Buddha taught. Because this, this quality, this capacity of the balanced mind, of this resilience of mind, of this um, flexibility of mind is so central that it touches on so many of the Buddha's teachings. So it's why I created this handout for this evening, um, just to show how many times, in how many lists, in how many pointings, equanimity is central. So I wanted you to have this just as a reference. We're not necessarily, actually, we're not going to teach everything that's on here. It's, it, there's, there's some sort of very complicated and, and deep teachings. There's the teachings about concentration that I just mentioned. But we'll touch on some of them. And there are some here that don't specifically mention equanimity, but they're considered the practices that lead to equanimity. So this is just a handout for you to put on your side of your cushion there and and bring it out if you want to remember a list or a Pali term or something. So it's not something you need to hold on to or memorize or anything, but just as a a background to some of the teachings that we'll be doing, but specifically to point to how often equanimity is in these lists and in these meditation lists, in these concentration lists, in the way the Buddha encouraged us to relate to our life with this capacity, this quality of equanimity, of balance of mind. And it's also often the stepping stone for deeper experiences, meditative experiences. So it's also important in that way. So again, just a background. We'll be referring to it, but you don't need to keep it to hand all the time.
And so you can see how um, equanimity, and, and a lot, well, I should say, a lot of the times I, these are presented as lists, they're, they're in what Buddha talked about them as lists, but our practice never unfolds necessarily that linearly. All of these lists inform each other. So certainly the four Brahma-viharas, the seven factors of awakening, where there is a, a, a little bit of a linear quality, but many of them are more circular or holographic, where we're just deepening and deepening each of the different aspects. And equanimity is then informing the other stages or steps or qualities that are being cultivated. So very central. And certainly for mindfulness, just to practice mindfulness. The essence of it is being present and knowing what's happening. So implicit in that is we're not lost in past or future. We're not lost in reactivity or judgment or emotional storms. But of course we do get lost. These things do happen, certainly in life, but they will happen here on retreat that memories will come up, heartaches will come up, losses and griefs will come up, wants and desires will come up. What we notice or what we start to see is the difference or how we experience those differently when we become mindful of them. Our relationship to those storms or those wants or desires immediately changes when we actually shift the relationship from being caught and identified with them to actually being mindful of them. And this is, again, what we'll be pointing to on this retreat. And equanimity, some degree of balance or equanimity, is necessary for that shift to happen. To shift from being lost and caught and identified and suffering to saying, oh, that's what's going on. I'm sad or I'm lost or I'm angry or I'm hurt. That moment of mindfulness changes the dynamic of what we're experiencing. So that's why we think it's so helpful to begin this retreat with just some basic teachings and practices of mindfulness. You've all, as we've learned this morning, or I think it was last night, Kamala asked, who's new to practice, and people have all had some experience. We've looked at the sheets, and you know, a lot of you have had many um, been on many retreats. So you have some experience of what this takes, um, what this practice of mindfulness is. What we're going to emphasize in this retreat is how that inf informs metta and how it definitely, both those practices, the mindfulness or awareness practice and the metta then inform equanimity and really see them almost like a tripod that... Um, brings a real strength to our practice, a real ability to meet different experiences with, with skill, with wisdom and compassion. And so we call them upaya or skillful means. Sorry, my microphone is taking to drifting. We, they, they can all be skillful means that we can kind of have as our toolkit. You know, the, the, one of the amazing things about how the Buddha taught is he taught so many different ways to different people, so many different techniques and practices and attitudes that we can bring. So that's a big part of why I think this retreat can be helpful, especially for experienced experience students, is we really get to explore that territory. So we're starting with mindfulness this morning, and as I said, we'll continue that throughout the retreat. And a big function of mindfulness is this integration of mind and body, that we um, step out of the delusion that many of us can have, that the body is just this vehicle to carry the head around in, you know, and the body has its functions or its use, uses, but we're either um, completely identified and obsessed with the body and how it looks or should look or doesn't look, or we're, we're disconnected from it. We don't pay attention to it. We're judgmental about it or we ignore it. But the Buddha said the body is an important foundation for our mindfulness. It is the first foundation of mindfulness in the um, really important teaching on the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness body is the first one. And so we use this as our vehicle to cultivate 
mindfulness, it's so valuable. And so this returning again and again to just feeling the body, how's the body? And as I said, even though it's the mind that we're training, the mind and the body are not separate. They both influence and uh, echo each other, reflect each other. So as we get to know the body, we're also understanding the mind and vice versa. And so this steadying of attention with this gentle, persistent effort is what we do over and over again. And it's all about learning to be fully present, be connected to this experience. We've talked already um, about how connected we can be, but not in that way I was just talking about, but uh, you know, the, the kind of line through whatever device we're attached to to the world out there, the internet and all of the social media sites and ways that we use to connect. And there's so much that's great about that, connecting people, so much can be shared and information and inspiration, but a lot of it is just getting lost, right? Lost in these endless themes of what's happening in, in, in different people, sometimes not even people that we know, and we're inundated with all this information, and it's all coming in. It's like this giant funnel pouring in so much of the time. You know, when email started to be um, how we communicated, I don't know what we did before it, but now I don't know what we do with it. I mean, I don't know about you, but our lives are run by email and just endless email. So, so it's great to be able to communicate and have this tracking of what was um, said and what people think, but it's just gotten overwhelming with this deluge of email. But now I know email's kind of over ha old hat and now it's instant messaging, right? It's just got to be, you know, short text. But that's sort of even less a way of, of actually sitting with what, what's being communicated. I read uh, recently, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, that eight to 18-year-olds spend an average of seven and a half hours a day using entertainment media. That's a big portion of someone's day to just be, and it's entertainment media, it's not schoolwork or whatever, but just that um, checking in on all the different platforms that you can check in. And so it's, it's certainly a, um, a cultural challenge for people relating to each other. I mean, how many times have you been in a restaurant where everyone, instead of talking, is looking at their phone? It's, it's kind of shocking to me still when I see that, but it's a problem in families as people come, you know, if they eat together, that they're not actually eating together, they're all on their devices. So at my chiropractor now, when I go in there, one of the first signs you see is a, a, a sort of big warning chart on what they call um, smartphone neck you know, text neck, which is with actually a physical, you know, a problem that can happen in people's necks and spines because they're bending over so much in that way. Um, and so we did a conscious renunciation today. Many of you actually turned in your devices. I encourage you to sort of be open to what that brings up and how often you might just unconsciously think, oh, I should check, or what's the time, or I wonder what's happening, or, you know, perhaps missing the little beeps that, that happen. You know, they, they say that the smartphone companies have basically really studied what creates addictive behavior and tailored those devices to do that. So the little beeps, the little bells and the whistles that we're like Pavlov's dogs, right? We're like, oh, what was that? Might be something. Better check. Could be. And so we've just, they're training us and we're getting very well trained in that. Uh, I like to collect uh, meditation um, cartoons and you can tell meditation is becoming more mainstream because there's many more of them now than there used to be. And there's a whole subgenre of meditation cartoons I call the guru subgenre. And in the guru subgenre, it's always a pretty, it doesn't matter who's drawn it, there's a similar kind of scenario. There's a mountain, which is a triangle with a wavy line for snow. 
and there's usually a, a flat ledge with a rock or a cave or something. And then the guru is pretty much always an old guy with a beard in a loincloth kind of sitting there. And then the seeker is coming up and, you know, it's a, obviously a perilous journey because they're often just peeking over the edge of this ledge with some kind of knapsack on their back. So that's the typical scenario repeated over and over again of the guru cartoon, you know, coming to ask the meaning of life. So the one I saw recently, that scenario, but the guru has his phone out and he's going, you know, hold on, I'm, I'm checking my phone. <laughs> so you know it's, <laughs> it's happening there even. And I just saw a Mother's Day version. It was Mother's Day the other day. Um, and instead of the usual guru with the loincloth, it's a mother sitting there. And you can tell she's a mother because she has a handbag and a hat. So that's the definition of a mother. But the, the person coming up over the you know, edge of the, the cliff is obvious. The, the, the word bubble goes, mom? <laughs> and the mother says, and I can tell this is, it's just words in the cartoon, but this is her voice. You act surprised. <laughs> the mother is guru. So we turned our, many of us turned our devices in. So a different opportunity here to not be searching outside for that piece of information or recipe or whatever it is you might think is out there, or, but to actually be fully present with no distractions. We never used to have to do this when we first built Spirit Rock wasn't even an issue. People didn't have smartphones so much. And then they had them, but they never worked here because we we're in this valley and there was just no signal. And then they had them and sometimes they'd ring, but you couldn't actually do anything. And then the next stage, people could get texts. Now, I don't know how, what they've done, but these signals are everywhere. So now they work a lot of the time. They don't work great, which is good, but they still work. And it's like we've had to think, how do we, it used to be not even an issue. People came on retreat, and as you came through the gate, there was really this sense of stepping out of our connections and busyness. And now we realized we have to actually invite you to renounce these devices because they're so addictive. So this different opportunity to turn away from that distraction, that obsession, whatever your relationship is, to that. I mean, and again, they're useful. We have them because they're useful. And as Kamala said, some people may need to connect. You have loved ones who you need to be in touch with, who uh, need, need care, and, and that's all fine. But it's really the intention that I'm talking about here of not getting lost in that. But how can we be fully present directly with as little distraction as possible? That's what we're practicing here. And what we often see is our minds are messy. You know that already, right? They're relentless. They never give up, never stop, unless we do this deliberate turning towards presence, towards the body, towards this simplicity. And so we pay attention again and again and again. We have this intention to be present. You're all here because you want to deepen your capacity to do that. What happens? How much time in meditation, especially in formal meditation today, did you spend thinking? Anyone dare to <laughs> convey a percentage? I would say between thinking and sleeping, that would kind of cover a lot of the territory <laughs> you're in today. And, you know, the thinking is past? Did I turn the stove off? You know, whatever your version of that is. Did I do send the email or whatever I needed to do? Future, you know, what will I do when I get home off this retreat? You know, what next retreat should I do? Whatever. That's what we do. We can't clench the mind down and say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. It has to be through intention and invitation. It has to be a preference for the stillness rather than the distraction. And that's a big part of what we're cultivating here. Can we start to prefer the stillness to the distraction, the simplicity to the busyness? It's why we create re retreat centers with these big open spaces. It's, it's got some stuff in it, but we keep it pretty simple. Your room is very simple. 
And nature is the perfect teacher for that. I mean, there's bounty here in the nature, but it, it doesn't lead us into ownership, right? That's the beautiful thing about nature. We don't have that same relationship. I mean, maybe you want to claim spirit rock for your own, but you know that's not going to work. It is what it is, and the nature is what it is. So it invites us into that presence. So important. So this intention is so important. And this willingness to start again, again and again, a thousand times, 10,000 times. You know, if you kept count, it would be thousands of times that you have to say, no, come back, not now. And actually be happy that you even notice that you're distracted because that means you're mindful again. And so we do that over and over again. So I've been talking a lot about mindfulness and why we're practicing it, what, uh, what we're doing here. But it's interesting. Um, I teach a lot of um, senior student retreats and programs where we have long discussions about what mindfulness is. Because we use this word, it's very, it become very mainstream, as I said before. You know, if I looked up just for, for fun, I typed into Amazon books, mindfulness, to see how many books would come up that had that frame or theme, 30,000. And I'm sure that's just, there's probably more than that. It's amazing when you think that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there were 10 Dharma books. Now there's so many. And one of the top ones that was listed as as I did this search was the little book of mindfulness, 10 minutes a day to less stress and more peace. If it were that easy, we could all go home. The Buddha wouldn't have given us 26 volumes of teaching if he could have just said, oh, 10 minutes and, you know, a day, you'll be fine. And I don't mean to be too sarcastic. Sometimes I contend that way. But there's a lot of simplification of what this actually takes to truly be mindful, to come into the presence, and to change this, these habits of mind that we've cultivated however long we've been here towards clinging and grasping and fear and anxiety. I wish 10 minutes a day would do it, but my sense is it, it doesn't. It needs more than that. So what is mindfulness? The Pali term is sati, and it literally, its root is in memory or to remember. We talk about being in the present moment, but it has this This framing about memory means we put it into a context. So yes, we want to be in the present moment, but we need to know what for. And we need to know where we've been. You know, what was I paying attention to? What am I paying attention to now? And it also is important that it's not just an inward turning, that we're not just shutting off the world, but it's an internal mindfulness connected to the external. So there's an inner knowing, but an outer connectedness to what's happening in the world. Again, this is central to this teaching I've referred to, the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness. Every time the Buddha introduces one of these foundations of body, of feeling tone, of mind and dhammas, he says, practice that internally and externally and both internally and externally. So that's important in our mindfulness, not just knowing what's happening in here, but really this um, sensitivity that we can develop where we're connected to the experience of others and what's for the well-being of others. So a simple definition of mindfulness is just knowing what's happening, knowing what's here. I like this definition I read just today. Mindfulness is a state of active, open attention to the present. And I like that because it says active. Mindfulness isn't just passive. I sit here kind of like a lump on a log and wait for things to happen. It's actually a very engaged practice. We need to cultivate a lot of qualities. I think as we practice what's called samasati, right or wise mindfulness, which is what happens when it's a path factor. There's a lot of lists in the Buddhist teachings. If you don't know that already, that's why, you know, this is just that tip of the iceberg of all the different lists there are. But Samasati, it's one of the um, eight 
path factors, the Noble Eightfold Path, that are what we cultivate as we practice meditation. And this word Sama means right or wise or whole or perfected, leading onward, conducive to liberation. So Sammasati, when it becomes true mindfulness, a lot of things come with that bare knowing that we just talked about. One of the things is there's a knowing that you know, that you are cultivating mindfulness. And it's samasati, it's this onward leading mindfulness. What does it lead onward to? The, the possibility of mindfulness is that it develops wholesome qualities like the paramis or the brahma viharas, um, all of the capacities of letting go, of, of, of um, kindness, etc. And it decreases unwholesome ones. That's how we can know that it's samasati. It doesn't mean that happens instantly in 10 minutes, but that that's the path, that's the direction that it goes. So that's the kind of the why of we do this. There's a whole you know, basket of teachings about the, the benefits and the, the power of mindfulness, of bringing our attention into the present moment and developing insight. That's why we call it insight meditation, is we start to see more clearly. So we see into the truth or the Dhamma. And uh, Tara spoke last night about the Dhamma as a refuge, meaning the truth of things. It does mean the teachings of the Buddha, but in this context of insight, it means into the way things are, into reality. And we can take refuge in that, in actually knowing what's true as best we can through mindfulness. And we develop this insight. Often it begins with very personal insight. Again, as I've been saying, into how this mind and heart works, into our own very personal conditioning, unique set of um, experiences, familial, cultural, uh, um, educational, whatever context that we've being conditioned that our minds and hearts have developed these habits and ways of being. We can develop insight into that so as we understand it, we're not so caught and bound. This conditioning, we start to free a little bit from it and so we're not so much identified and having it create suffering around this sense of self that we create. Ultimately, the insight or not ultimately, but along with that, we start to develop what we call impersonal um, insight. And that's where this really seeing of the way things are for everyone. A classic example, again, another list of three characteristics, where we see that everything's impermanent, flowing in flux, that it has this unsatisfactory nature, that it's not reliable, and that there's nothing solid at the center of it, at the center of me, you, or anything. We see that, and we see that's the way things are, and it can be somewhat challenging when we start to open to those truths, but ultimately very freeing. So that's the impersonal nature. Another definition of mindfulness from John Kabat-Zinn, he says, mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way on purpose, in the present moment, non-judgmentally. And this has a few of the aspects that I've uh, spoken to as being meaningful, that we do it deliberately and we know we're doing it. We're in the present moment, but we know we're in the present moment. And this non-judgmentally is we see as clearly as possible. And that's the equanimity piece. That's the balance piece. The, 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 the quality or the uh, capacity set, Oh, look at what's happening now. Look at this heart. Look at this mind. And as we do that, that's the framing with mindfulness that I spoke about before that allows us to understand what's happening, not be so caught, not be so uh, lost in it. And so as we do that, we can develop a practice where, well, our practice can become with these three great qualities, kind, interested, and relaxed kind, interested, relaxed attention. All of these qualities, the samasati, being developed and, and both nurturing these qualities in ourselves, but bringing those qualities to our experience. So again, it's kind of cyclical. So that's the how, that's the attitude 
that we want to develop. I've talked a little about the why and the what, what we pay attention to, but the how is with this connected, balanced, non-judgmental attention. Another way of saying it is kind, interested, relaxed attention. This is a really helpful attitude to bring to um, our experience. So we call this insight meditation, as I said, because of, if we pay attention in that way, it's just inevitable that we'll start to see more clearly. It's like, you know, having white walls where you can put anything up there and see it clearly. As we drop away some of the busyness and the the distraction that we're so used to living in, we start to see more clearly. And this includes everything, as I said, our conditioning, our reactivity, our habits of mind, um, into everything, inner and outer. And it can be humbling to see or to realize how often we don't see clearly. We often only realize that when we see how confused we sometimes are, how lost we can be. We see that we're often blinded by our habits, by our conditioning, our prejudices, our preconceptions and our projections. We take these little bits of data and we make stories about them. We make stories about other people, about places, about experiences, and we can make all these assumptions about someone just by how, you know, it's amazing here on retreat, we're all in silence, hopefully, and you've probably got stories about most everyone here already, right? Putting them into categories of the, the basic one is like, dislike, move towards, move away, but then all of the variations that better than, worse than, um, you know, similar to, whatever. We, we're, it's just a habit that we do. We can do it about how people look, how they move, how they act, how they speak, if we hear them speak. We can make assumptions about race and background and sexual identity and um, just from all of these different data points. And it's so often wrong. We also make assumptions about ourselves. You know, we have stories and projections about ourselves, what we can or can't do, what we're good at or not good at, who we are as an essential human being. And a big part of practice is to see through that to see how often that's fueled by delusion, that we're lost in delusion when we're telling ourselves these stories about ourselves and about others. So our practice is to learn to be with things as they are, as directly and simply as possible, to use this exploration, this simple exploration of mind and body to bring this understanding and then this interplay between the inner exploration and the outer exploration. They're not separate. They're both important. Thich Nhat Hanh, that wonderful Vietnamese teacher who's written many great books, um, and this, but this is from The Miracle of Mindfulness, so you can tell what he thinks about mindfulness, The Miracle of Mindfulness. He says, mindfulness is the miracle by which we master and restore ourselves. It is the miracle which can call back in a flash our dispersed mind and restore it to wholeness so that we can live each minute of life. Thus, mindfulness is at the same time a means and an end, the seed and the fruit. Mindfulness itself is the life of awareness. Mindfulness enables us to live. So really this evocative call or or naming of the, the power of mindfulness, of this act of simply being present and how life changing, life transforming it can be. And as I've been saying, this is the foundation of these other practices. So we can turn this attentiveness, this carefulness, this kindness, that we're bringing to our direct moment experience to actually cultivate that relationship of kindness, which we call metta. Metta or loving kindness or friendliness or goodwill. We can actually deliberately cultivate that. 
as I said, mine, we're, we're using metta to kind of warm up the field a little. Many of us have a sense of um, self-judgment or criticism that's very habitual, very um, uh, ingrained in how we relate to ourselves. Sometimes that negativity can be turned outwards. And so metta can really help, help us see how painful that is and really um, be very instrumental in transforming that capacity. Um, so we, be, we wanted to begin with metta to as we call, warm up the field, warm up our hearts, feel that sense of connectedness, and then have the equanimity develop out of that, out of the sense of caring, out of the sense of connection. And so we use, as Kamala introduced this afternoon, these phrases that represent this sense of well-wishing. It's a very traditional way of um, practice. So we repeat these phrases. But even as we repeat phrases, which might seem like a mental activity, we want to keep grounded in the body. We use the mindfulness to know what's happening. You know, are we saying the phrases? Is there that intention being cultivated? What are we feeling? How is the breath? How is the body? So we always stay grounded in the body, even as we are offering these phrases of metta towards ourselves or towards others. And so this beautiful training of the heart, and again, if, if you're familiar with metta practice, you'll know how powerful it can be. If it's new for you, many of you may have done it um, in shorter periods, but to do it consistently for hours, if not days at a time, sometimes even weeks or months, incredibly transformative. And it, it's inviting us into this sense of well-being and acceptance. I often think the shorthand from metta is just saying yes. Yes to this body, to this mind, to this heart, to whoever is in front of me. Yes. Okay. Kindness, acceptance. Very simply to all aspects of our, of our being. The, uh, the Dalai Lama often would just say, my religion is kindness. That's all you need. Kindness, and I think he's a very wise man. So I always like to keep the metta practice really simple as this, you know, we, when we use the term loving kindness, as soon as we put love in there, we can get tripped up a little. We think it's got to be grand or expansive or, you know, immediately unconditional. And for most of us, that's not the case. We take these small steps of, of opening and, and caring. We have to start where we are. So I always like to make sure we, we know it also means just friendliness or acceptance or benevolence or goodwill. It's this basic okayness. It's okay. I'm okay being here right now just as I am. It's okay. Okay with you right now just as you are. Very simple. Because it's not always unconditional love. It's certainly not always blissful. I mean, when I teach people practice, I know I've practiced many weeks of metta. You know, if you describe it, it can sound kind of horrifying at first, perhaps to repeat these phrases over and over again. But you can have an ideal about it. Oh, you're just going to be bathed in love, you know, the whole day or week or months or whatever you're practicing. If you've ever done it, you know how difficult it is and why we call it a purification practice, because whatever are the obstacles to metta, and we'll talk about those, will come up in a, in, a, in a kind of archetypal way or in a very individual way. So this is part of the process of metta, is working with those challenges and really um, leaning into them, exploring them, understanding what's the conditioning around them and bringing our wisdom and compassion to it. So we need to have... Um, an understanding of what this word means, metta. I like uh, how Ajahn Sumedho describes uh, the practice of metta. He said, metta, Ajahn Sumedho is an American um, man who ordained as a monk with Ajahn Chah in Thailand 50 years ago, six, maybe a long time ago. So he's been a very influential um, teacher and monastic in the, the Western Dharma scene. He says, metta is often translated as love. This word has many meanings for us. We usually connect it with liking. I love pizza means I like to eat it, but not I have metta for it. 
With metta, you can love, but you don't have to like. Metta includes the opposite of liking, not liking. Liking depends on circumstances or mood. Metta doesn't. When metta is idealistic, it doesn't work. I should love my mother. Or we can send to all beings but can't feel for the people we know because we feel we always have to like them, and sometimes we don't. This kind of metta can't include difficulties. When a child is misbehaving, the conditions for liking aren't there, but unconditional love can still be. Liking requires certain conditions. Metta doesn't. We should use ideals like guiding stars to be able to acknowledge current realities may not be ideal. So I love that, just very simple and direct. Yes, you know, metta doesn't have to mean like. It certainly doesn't have to mean that we want to draw every single person close. It just means this possibility of the heart being open, being receptive. So we don't, it doesn't help to be idealistic. Um, that's usually not a skillful means. And it also can be very easy to be overwhelmed by the dukkha, the suffering in the world, the negativity. And again, part of the challenge of being, we're all often so connected is we're just, as I said, this funnel pouring in of information where we know every disaster that's happening in every part of the planet, every famine and flood and war and injustice. And we can feel the impact of that, all of the, the, the um, uh, news, the stories about cruelty and injustice and, and, and prejudice, the, the, the killings that are happening, it's just heartbreaking, um, unnecessary violence and intolerance in the world. So much fear and reactivity out there. What's also important to know is there are countless acts of kindness. And that is the good thing the internet can be used for. There are, you know, whole websites and places you can go and certainly the information can come in about these acts of kindness, about the joy and the love, the human and around pets, you know, dogs and cats and people saving animals. So there's, it's, there's, there's much goodness that out there, but it doesn't, you know, make the headlines because it's not so dramatic. I don't know if you saw this story. This really touched me. I think it happened a little while ago, maybe a year or so ago, but I was just ref thinking of these kinds of stories, and this is one that stuck with me, so maybe you've heard it. So this is how it goes. Tara Wood of Augusta, Georgia, was with her two kids on a routine trip, trip to the grocery store. It was Nora, her four-year-old's birth, four birthday. That's when they ran across Dan Peterson, known as Mr. Dan. So have you heard about Mr. Dan and Nora? No? Good. I'll tell it to you. Mr. Dan walked by. She, Nora, the four-year-old, smiled and waved. Hi, old person. It's my birthday. It's a good opening line. He stopped in his tracks, smiled, and said, Well, hello, little lady. How old are you today? They chatted for a couple of minutes, and we went our separate ways in the supermarket. But a few minutes later, Nora decided she really wanted a picture with him. So Wood tracked him down. This is Mr. Dan talking. I just walked away, and then I was coming up the bread aisle, said Mr. Dan. And I said, okay, this is almost my last aisle before I get to get out of here. And then here is this little girl again. And so they posed together, took photos, and then they hugged each other like they were long-lost friends, the mother said. They thanked him for his time. He teared up and said, no, thank you. This has been the best day I've had in a long time. You've made me so happy, Miss Nora, Wood said. Mr. Dan described Nora on that day as a light that just lit me up. Wood was so touched by the exchange that she went home and posted the photos on Facebook. Not only did she receive thousands of instant reactions, that's also when something really special happened. A friend of Mr. Dan's reached out to let Wood know that his wife had just died and she hadn't seen him this happy in a long time. This person knew Mr. Dan and his late, late wife, Mary. She was the key to us getting in touch. So the internet is good for a lot of things, said Wood. So I got this... So. 
this is Mr. Dan now, I got this phone call and she said, is this the Dan that talked to the little girl in the grocery store, said Mr. Dan? And I said, are you talking about Nora? Wood decided they should probably pay him a visit and Mr. Dan agreed. They came by the house and sure enough, she grabbed me and hugged me like there was no tomorrow, said Mr. Dan. Nora bought him a framed picture of the two of them in the grocery store, pictures she colored, he put them on the fridge, and a bag full of pastries and butterfingers, said Wood. After going to visit him, Wood said, Nora asked to visit Mr. Dan after school every single day. While they don't go by every day, they make it a point to call him at least once a week, and they definitely went over to help him celebrate his 82nd birthday. Nora also worries, and there's great photos in the article too, Nora also worries about Mr. Dan and doesn't want him to be alone. Nora has been worried about Mr. Dan being alone. She wanted to know if we could buy him a dog because dogs make everything better, said Wood. While they didn't get Mr. Dan an actual dog, Miss Nora made sure to hand deliver a stuffed puppy. While her mother said Nora spends lots of time thinking about Mr. Dan, he said it's meant the world to him as well. Mr. Dan said that when he had run into Nora at the grocery store, he was having a really tough time. It was one of those days where I'm on my own little private pity party, said Mr. Dan, and I'm feeling sorry for myself and doubting my beliefs, and it's obviously changed my opinion that day and my, lifted my spirits to heights I hadn't known for a long time. Mr. Dan made sure to let Wood, the mother, know. He said he hadn't had an uninterrupted night of sleep for the past several months, said Wood. Sadness and anxiety had made his mind wander at night, but since meeting Nora, he has slept soundly every single night. He said she healed him. Wood said she wasn't sure why Nora chose to call out Mr. Dan. She has grandfathers, but seems to think of Mr. Dan as a friend. I don't know, for some reason, obviously, there are other old people at the grocery store, said Mr. Dan, and she saw me and I was the old person she had to talk to. Woods is sure it was simply meant to be. I can only, assu I can only assume there was some divine intervention or stars are lying or she was nudged by the universe. We are all better because of it, though. I would call it karma, personally. Wood will keep updating the world on this dynamic duo. Mostly she, Nora, just cares about his well-being and his heart. She wants him to be happy. I guess that's what friends are supposed to do. Mr. Dan summed up his new friend as well. Friend well, I didn't if I didn't have anything else to do with the rest of my life, I have her to love. So I just love that story. You know, just that karmic connection they obviously had, the following through and then she cares about his well-being and his heart. She wants him to be happy. She's four years old. She's practicing metta. And for Mr. Dan, obviously, she says it's healed him. And I, if I don't have anything to, else to do, I have her to love. That's the possibility of metta, of metta and that open heart and that feeling of connection and wanting others to be happy that our own happiness and well-being can come so much out of that external wish, that caring about others. And so we can train in this capacity. Nora didn't need to be trained. I, I'd be interested to see, you know, if we can know what happens to her. But, and that's often the open and openness and innocence of a child, of just that spontaneous well-wishing. But most of us need some more training. Our hearts have gotten closed or defended, to know that this practice of metta actually can move us in that direction, of that just wishing well, wanting others to be happy, and know that that's possible, that can be so healing and transformative. And it can be a, a foundational response even when things are difficult, because again, it doesn't just make everything wonderful and rosy but it means there's this possibility of this kind of response. I love the words of Martin Luther King, where he says, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. 
And I don't know if he'd heard the words of the Buddha, but the Buddha said something 2,600 years ago, very similar. Hatred never ceases through hatred, but by love alone is ceased. This is an ancient and an eternal law, saying the same wisdom. So this capacity of metta is powerful and it's optimistic. It speaks to the possibility of transformation of ourselves, of our relationships. And I love Maya Angelou. She says, love recognizes no barriers. It jumps hurdles, leaps fences, penetrates walls to arrive at its destination full of hope. This is that capacity, this openness, this resilience that we can cultivate. And on a meta retreat I taught a while ago, a student at the end of the retreat came up with this. He said, she said, instead of everyone applying for Medicare, we need to apply for Metacare. We need to practice for universal coverage of kindness, pervading all quarters of the world of the country without discrimination or pre-existing conditions. Metta is an optimistic practice. People can be happy. It just lifted my spirits. You wrote that note to me at the end. People can be happy. I can be happy. And it doesn't mean, you know, in some la-di-da kind of way or that everything's always going to be, you know, going our way, but just that that can be a basic response or attitude. To have that happen, metta and equanimity need to go together. We need to bring the resilience of mind, the, the recognition of the, the eight worldly winds that are on your chart there of gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, joy and sorrow, they will cycle through. But if we have this basic attitude of interest and acceptance and kindness, this transformation is possible. This heart, this mind can know this sense of well-being. Sharon Salzberg says, equanimity endows loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy with their sense of patience, that ability to be constant and to endure, even if the love Sympathy or rejoicing is unreturned, even through all of the ups and downs. The other Brahma-viharas owe their boundless nature to equanimity, that ability to embrace all beings impartially. So that's the possibility of these practices, landing in the present moment, knowing what's happening in our direct experience, feeling that connectedness with the external, with other, with the world, with nature, opening the heart to this potential of kindness, of metta, and then bringing this balance, this resiliency of mind. This is this amazing triangle, a tripod, very sturdy foundations of our practice that allow us to open, to learn to trust ourselves, and to find the freedom that's possible from this path, in this path, here and now from a balanced mind and an open heart. So at the end of our um, offerings, we just like to sit quietly for a moment, just to let the words settle. settle. You don't have to change posture, though you can if you like to get comfortable. It's just to create this transition point and mainly to let the words go. There's nothing here to remember or hold on to. The good thing is it's all recorded. You can just trust that you'll retain what you need to retain. If anything wasn't helpful, the most skillful thing to do is just to let it go and sit in the felt sense of the body and the mind as it is right now. Body sitting, breathing. The heart, however it is, accepting and offering kindness to yourself and to the others in the room.
thank you for your attention. We have about a half hour now for walking practice. Perhaps you want to stretch a little downstairs or get a cup of tea, just refresh yourself. And then our last sitting of the day, we'll end with some, we'll have some chanting. So the sheet that we had the refuges and precepts on the other side is the, the chant that we'll do in the evening. And I think it says about a half hour sitting. We often make it a little shorter on this end of the first full day because we know you're often tired and there's an extra encouragement to come. So know that it'll be a little shorter than a half hour. I really encourage you to come. It's a nice way to end the evening by sharing our voices together. So see you at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.